0: In 1921, the English Football Association effectively banned women's football. Nearly a century on, that fact is closer to common knowledge than it was before, but to use myself as a barometer, you may not know how the ban came about. So, here we go. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you'll know the basic history of football's origins. England deem ourselves the home that football is forever on the brink of coming back to, although various other countries and cultures also pop up as runners and riders. China is the usual one, with a game called Su Chu being played in the 2nd and 3rd centuries BC. It involved a leather ball that had to be kicked into a net, although this one was a lot smaller than the goals we have today, less than a metre across in size, and other games where people kick a ball get mentioned in Japanese, Greek, Roman, and Native American history. While the English clearly didn't invent kicking a ball around, the codification of the game in 1863 certainly gave us the sport we have today, although there have, of course, been tweaks as we've gone through history. A fun side note on this, one of the points of contention back in the 1860s around codification was hacking which is exactly what we understand it to be in football today, kicking an opponent's legs. Uh, It was dropped from the approved rules, although I'm sure that foreign attackers arriving on these shores will sometimes wonder whether, over 150 years later, the English got their own message. The FA Cup was created in 1872, the same year as the first official international football match, uh, which happened in Glasgow between Scotland and England. Wanderers, a team from Upper Norwood in south-east London, won the FA Cup, while the Scotland-England international finished in a goalless draw. You might think that it's a little strange that the first official international took place in Scotland, and that's because it wasn't really the first international match. An England team had played a series of matches a couple of years earlier against a Scotland team, but much to the consternation of the Scots, this team had been mostly made up of players based in London. Okay, fine, let's do this properly, said the FA, and they arranged a match north of the border. But anyway, I digress. Women were present in the footballing sphere right from these early days. They arrived in such great numbers to a Preston North End match in 1885 that the club started charging them for entry. Uh, Before then, they'd been able to turn up for free. There's match reporting throughout the late 19th century that mentions female sections of the crowd, Although them being mentioned at all may be an indication that it was an unusual sight to see, or at least one that the writer wasn't expecting. Part of a match report in 1882 for Darwin against Blackburn Rovers read, so lovely was the weather that the fair sex of all classes lent their charming presence to the extent of upwards of a thousand, which meant that they made up just over a tenth of an attendance of 10,000 people about Hurst, which is now little more than a village to the east of Manchester, a 20 or 30 minute drive to Manchester City's Etihad Stadium. It was written, Hearst is not a big place, but it can hold its own in the matter of female football followers who can shout. While the crowds may largely have been male, there's no more reason to think that the women of the 19th century paid no attention to football as there would be to think that of the women of the 21st century. Football was a sport played to crowds of thousands, and some of these thousands were women. It's worth noting that there were obstacles to women attending matches, and ones that you may be able to guess at. Uh, Most of the mentions of working class women in the crowd also mentioned their youth, which might be an indication that they only had this free time to go to football matches pre-motherhood. Although that said, there were also occasional mentions in the press of working class women at local matches with small children in their arms. So it could be a whole family affair. There were also at least two female football journalists playing their trade in the 1890s, the so-called Lothian Lasses. There are a lot of things that historians would like to know if only they could find the information. And even though I'm not a, a proper historian, who the Lothian Lasses actually were is definitely one of mine. The Lothian Lasses wrote for The Football Field, a football-only newspaper published in Bolton, as well as other papers in the Lancashire area. For newbies to 19th century journalism, it might seem unusual for two women to be reporting on football under an anonymous pen name, but it seems to have been the done thing back then. I did my undergraduate dissertation using mid-19th century Australian newspapers and correspondence there was signed with all manner of pen names and pseudonyms, and I saw a similar thing with the late 19th century newspapers that I was looking at for this as well. The Lothian Lasses weren't just eager fans wanted their name in print, they quickly became popular figures in the region. The Preston Herald reported in December 1892 that the Lothian Lasses were accommodated with seats in the North End stand on Saturday and were objects of much interest to a few young sparks, some of whom found it difficult to keep away from their vicinity. The sketcher would have plenty of scope for her artistic abilities, while the chronicler had no reasons to be short of copy. Um, Yes, I forgot to mention, the Lothian Lasses were a writer-artist duo, with their match reports illustrated with scenes of action from the game. The pair was such a draw to these small newspapers, many of which in the region at that time period ran to just four or eight broadsheet pages, that the Lancashire Evening Post led their Christmas Eve football coverage in 1892 with a note that the celebrated ladies known as the Lothian Lasses would have a special report on the upcoming Burnley versus Everton tie. I could do an entire podcast about the Lothian Lasses and the bonus Podcast for this particular topic will probably feature them even more, but if I don't move on soon, we'll be stuck in the 1890s forever. We've covered women watching the game and women reporting on the game, but what about women actually playing it? That's what the ban of 1921 was actually about, after all. The first international women's football match took place only a decade or so after the first men's, with an England Scotland clash in Edinburgh on Saturday, the 7th of May, 1881. Some 2,000 people were said to have been there, apparently a reasonable figure for a match at the time, and Scotland won 3-0. According to the Dundee Evening Telegraph, who either had a reporter at the game or heard about it the same weekend, this wasn't the first time that the English team had played either, having appeared in public on the other side of the border. Women were clearly playing football then, albeit not in the number of organised teams as the men were. Reports at the time varied in attitude from the neutral, to the acidic. The Edinburgh Evening News and Dundee Evening Telegraph were pretty neutral in their editions the following Monday, but the Aberdeen Evening Press opened with the quite stunningly 19th century line, football is undoubtedly one of the manliest and most beautiful of our outdoor games. I think that gives you an idea of what they went on to think about the rest of the game. Meanwhile, the Glasgow Evening Post accused the organisers of the match of being in it purely for the money, while the most peculiar line of the Scottish press's reaction has to go to Glasgow's North British Daily Mail for the line, The elevating influence of women is great, but it is doubtful if it extends to football. The Glasgow News issued the declarative statement that football is not a game for women and the spectacle of a score of girls careering around a field in knickerbockers is not to be defended on any ground of public utility. It went on to say, There is some talk of these international players giving a performance in Glasgow, so that the authorities here should consider whether some means may not be devised for checking a scandalous enterprise. This match did indeed take place about 10 days later, but it had to be called off after about an hour due to crowd trouble. It's probably for this reason that two of the leading figures in British women's football of the period set up teams under pseudonyms. These 1881 matches were played by Mrs Graham's Eleven on the Scottish side, formed by Helen Graham Matthews. In 1894, the British Ladies Football Club was founded by Nettie Honeyball, a pseudonym for team captain Mary Hudson, The British Ladies Football Club, sponsored by its president, Lady Florence Dixie, went on a tour of the United Kingdom in the hopes, as Lady Dixie said, of endeavouring to popularise the sport by playing some matches in different localities. There was, unfortunately, crowd trouble and a critical press again in places, while on rare occasions they struggled to find opposition to play against. Still, at this point, just before the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries, we're only a generation away from the extraordinarily successful Dick Kerr's Ladies side. Formed in 1917, the Dick Kerr's Ladies mainly played charity matches for wartime and ex servicemen causes, but their popularity exploded in just a few short years. The team played matches and tours across Britain, Europe, as well as the United States and Canada, gathering crowds in the tens of thousands. In 1921, the team played 67 games and turned down more than 100 invitations from lord mayors and members of parliament around Britain. In that year, they probably raised £50,000 for charity. And then they were stopped. On the 5th of December 1921, a resolution was passed by the FA's Consultative Committee. It read, Complaints having been made as to football being played by women, the council feel impelled to express their strong opinion that the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. Complaints have also been made as to the conditions under which some of these matches have been arranged and played, and the appropriation of the receipts to other than charitable objects. The council are further of the opinion that an excessive proportion of the receipts are absorbed in expenses and an inadequate percentage devoted to charitable objects. For these reasons, the council request the clubs belonging to the association to refuse the use of their grounds for such matches. The FA wouldn't rescind this request until 1971. There are, in my mind, three things going on in that resolution, and I will go through them line by line as they appear in the FA's request. The first is that football isn't a sport for women. We saw that in the press coverage of the first women's international match in 1881 and the ways that it was expressed, and the same sentiments were echoed here 40 years later. That it was indecent and or unhealthy for women to play was the gist of it. The second and particularly intriguing one, I think, is the accusation about misappropriating the money being raised for charity, that too much was going on expenses as the FA claimed or perhaps otherwise being pocketed. There doesn't seem to be much widespread evidence of this and rebuttals came out from players and coaches making the very valid point that with these women touring all over the country and elsewhere they need to be safe and fed and get from one place to the other. They were also taking time off work to play these matches and to go touring which meant that they needed to be recompensed for the wages that they lost. Women's football being fraudsters as we could perhaps sensationally summarise this accusation, is also quite conspicuous in its absence from the contemporary coverage of the ban. At the time, the mostly male, of course, reporters and writers in the press were far more focused on the societal and moral implications of women playing the sport than they were the accusation of misappropriation of funds. The third thing to draw out from the resolution is that the FA didn't quite ban women from playing football. That, of course, wasn't in their jurisdiction. They couldn't go down to the local park and, if they happened to see some girls or young women playing, take their ball away. Stopping clubs from allowing women to play at their grounds was the limit of the FA's power. And it was only a resolution worth making now, in 1921, because teams like Dick Kerr's ladies were in fact playing at the men's stadium. This wasn't the first time that the FA had voiced its displeasure at women's football, though. They'd raised concerns about how the charitable funds collected at these matches were being used back in October of the same year, and in 1902 the council warned its members not to play matches against what it called ladies' teams. It seems to me like far, far too much of a coincidence for this 1921 ban to happen at the end of the same year that Ditker's ladies were so incredibly overbooked that they were turning away MPs. I also think it's worth pointing out here that women's football can't have been as scandalous to society as its detractors would have us think. While the Dicker's ladies coming to town was a good fundraiser for local charities, MPs and Lord Mayors surely wouldn't invite them if it would jeopardise their political careers. It also seems a bit odd to me for the FA to feel threatened by the popularity of these games, seeing as the matches were largely one-offs for charity, and Hey, if women's football really was so popular that it was threatening the men's game, then why not try incorporating it under your own umbrella? And yet, issue the ban the FA did. Although a ladies' football association was set up within days, and women certainly didn't stop playing football, the ban had an undeniable short and long-term impact on the women's game. It wasn't just the big teams like Dick Kerr's ladies that were playing charity matches at the time. They'd been happening at the local level too. 1921 was the year of a nationwide lockout of miners at coal pits. Coal prices had dropped, and mine owners wanted to cut wages by up to 50% to make up for this. Unsurprisingly, this didn't go down well. Miners and their unions refused to accept the wage cuts and were locked out of work as a result. From the start of April of that year, the gates of the pits were closed, meaning many communities now had to find some other way of putting food on the table. Many local charitable and fundraising initiatives were started, and women's football matches were part of this. They particularly took off in areas of the north-west, around Wigan and Lee, a footballing as well as mining hotspot and local region of the by-now internationally famous Dick Kerr's Ladies. These more local matches were on a far less grand scale, played on farmers' fields and bringing in sums of 15 or £20 rather than the hundreds or thousands that the Dick Kerrs were collecting but every little helped, and the games provided a bit of entertainment and distraction in what must have been a thoroughly miserable time. Five years later, another industrial dispute led to the general strike of 1926, and suddenly communities had to rally around yet again. But these local women's football matches don't seem to have been played in the areas that they had been in 1921. Jane Oakley was one of the young women who played in some of these matches in 1921, wearing clogs with wooden soles and a leather upper, polished with black shoe polish till they shone. These are what I wore in the pit, she told historian Thea Melling. We started playing football in them at first because they were warm with having wooden bottoms. But, as Oakley says, we seemed to finish all at once. Something happened, we couldn't understand what happened, and I loved it, I did. It seems likely that the spotlight on women's football at the time, combined with the lead set by the FA, led public opinion down a certain road. There'd been people dismissing or outright condemning the idea of women playing football for as long as they'd been doing it, but despite this the sport had grown anyway. The trajectory was certainly pointing upwards in 1921. But women's football was in a precarious, fragile place. If touring sides struggled in places to find opponents, then it seems to me unlikely that a full league structure could have been supported nationwide at the time. Perhaps with more of these charity exhibition games, popularity and support for female footballers would have grown, but with no FA Stadia to play in, these matches could no longer have thousands upon thousands attending them. Although the period from 1921 to 1971 isn't exactly the one that people will think of as the golden age of men's football, It was still several decades in which a professional game could exist and plant roots in communities that was denied the women's game. A section of public opinion may have been anti-women's football, but the FA's ban legitimised that section and made it the status quo. It's nearly half a century again since that ban was lifted, and we're only just managing to break that status quo. My original script stopped at this point, but it's been about a week since writing and editing it until I've been able to properly record it. And the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and its possible ramifications for women's football has made me want to add to it. FIFPro, the global representative of professional football players, released a paper in April called COVID-19 Implications for Women's Professional Football. It highlights the ways that COVID-19 has already impacted women's football, as well as the vulnerable state of the women's game, even before the pandemic. To pick out a fact or two from the report, 60% of paid players were taking home less than $600 a month, and 37% were being paid late, and that was before the current crisis. The FA ban on women playing at affiliate grounds in 1921 has almost been gone for as long as it was in place by now. But once again, and here I'm strongly in the realm of personal opinion, I once again feel like the men's game is going to be a gatekeeper to women's football's progression. Men's clubs have infrastructure and, crucially, ties to their community. It was thanks to these communities that they grew in the first place, while women were banned and afterwards, and it would be a crushing, dismal painful shame for these community institutions to choose the women's teams as the first cost-cutting victim of the coronavirus crisis. It would be understandable for clubs to worry about their finances, but it should force English football as a whole to reassess its relationship with the spending-to-revenue ratio. While this shouldn't be taken as an excuse for owners to let things go stale at clubs, it's the fans and not league status that are the heart of a team. I'm worried that women's football is going to get thrown under the bus again, only this time it will be by the clubs rather than the FA.